Mover Nation, you guys all know how I lead a really busy life, right? And I know we could all use a little more relaxation. Now, whether you're trying to chill out or just need a good night's rest, Next Evo's CBD will be your best friend. But, and this is big, not all CBD products are created equal. Shockingly, a study found that many CBD brands contain as little as 60% of what their labels promise. I've been trying out Next Evo Naturals and Movers. It's the real deal. And their commitment? Well, it's giving you exactly what's on the label. Remember, they've undergone four clinical trials, a feat unmatched by any other brand of CBD. Now, I personally adore their Stress CBD Complex Gummies. When I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, they are a total game changer. And those nights when sleep is all too elusive for me, the triple action CBD sleep does absolute wonders. Leave summer stress behind and upgrade your CBD. Go to nextevo.com forward slash MPT to get 25% off plus a free bottle of premium pure CBD, a $50 value limit one use per customer. That's nextevo.com slash MPT. Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. What people don't always realize is he wasn't an Olympic doctor when when he commenced all of this. It, it, he was just a young guy in a small town wandering into a gym and asking to volunteer. So that's where I first met him again. I was eight. He was in his early 20s. We all had nothing but hopes and dreams and a positive future ahead of us, or so we thought. And that's where he set up shop and began rehearsing what would become the activity, which we now know is sexual abuse, but at the time we thought was medical treatment, that would make him what will go down in history, I think, is one of the, the most prolific serial pedophiles of all time, at least in sport. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry, and this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode, down. Yes. And, you know, kind of like an up and down week though, right? It's been like, you know, it, well, Sarah, our, our guest talks about it, but you know, this has been an up and down week for, for both of us. Yeah, no, and I definitely have some dates coming up. Like tomorrow, the day that we release is Cash's second year of his death. And then this Sunday is my seven year survival anniversary. And then my yeah. sister is also in Lahaina. So you know, sending prayers and good thoughts out to her. Yeah, it's been a tough week. And, it, you know, obviously the fires in Maui, I mean, it's like, it's still, as I saw this morning, there was 1,300 people unaccounted for. So uh, we will have links in the show notes of today's episode for some places to donate. Of course, obviously the American Red Cross, but also Tara's uh, sister has set up a, a, a GoFundMe, I believe, for people to, you know, you want to make sure in disaster situations that your money is going to the right place because there's so many opportunists that are out there to just try to make a money grab, which is so unfortunate, right? When people play on other people's trauma. Yes, no. And I heard from her that there's a lot going out. This is kind of something that we talk about, you know, dead bodies, you know, dead bodies are now washing up onto the shore. So, you know, trauma dumping on you guys. <laughs> 
By the way, speaking of trauma dumping, we have in the store, which is my store, but it's also Survivor Squad store, we have the no trauma dumping t-shirt and racerback tee, which is like a tank top for ladies designed by Tara. I was like, I put the put it in Canva and then you've perfected it. <laughs> it's the miracle of Photoshop. So we'll have those when we're next week in Austin for the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival with Laney Hops. But we are also going to we're gonna we're gonna have some some things. We're gonna do some things and we've got some new merchandise and we're moving onward and upward and yeah. So why don't you tell us really fast who Cash was? For so Cash was my dog that was in my attack with me. I got him when he was eight weeks old, and I believe around that time he was like six or five years old. And he, John actually had to get stitches because someone revived John and brought him back to life in a sense. Not he wasn't there, you know, he, he didn't have yeah, brain activity. Brain yeah, yeah, but he had to get stitches from Cash, and you know, Cash's teeth were pretty dull. So that dog was with me tell at the end and then it was weird too because i've been in a toxic relationship before where the guy ended up hitting me with a car and cash actually passed away the same day he did Ooh. so it's a really interesting circle life is circadian as i always say and by the way terry you just trauma dumped on us today. sorry <laughs> <laughs> and that's why i'm wearing no makeup in here <laughs> <laughs> so so tara so so we have a guest Speaking of just, I mean, harrowing story. So she is a survivor of Dr. Larry Nasser, you know, who his crimes stretched over three decades as we came to find out from her. Yeah. And I want you guys to listen to this episode with sympathy for her and understand that if she doesn't hate her abuser and she doesn't just flip that switch, understand why, because these relationships are so complicated. Yeah. And I think she does a great job. And I think you, you mean to say, listen with empathy, right? And in really understanding yeah. that, and this is a complicated thing for me because it really resonated with me when she was talking about Dr. Nasser because he, she even felt bad for him when he was attacked in prison a few weeks ago. Her Because... You know, she he was somebody that she looked up to and that she had trusted in that relationship was with. And it's the same thing that I experienced with my father. So when we were talking, I really resonated with that because even though my father is this horrific, psychopathic human being, he's also a human being. He's also my father. And they had such a such a really good relationship leading up to before she realized that, that all this abuse was happening and she was coming to terms with processing it, she still feels this way. And she still has this, you know, I don't want to call it a soft spot in her heart, but she still feels for him because she's an empath as well, naturally. So yeah, listen to her without judgment. It's really hard, but if you haven't walked in those shoes, you don't really know until you know. And if you know, you know. And <laughs> to be honest with you, as I always say, we're all a part of a squad that no one really wants to be a part of, but we're all a part of the Survivor Squad. Yeah, so let's get into it. Let's get into it.
Welcome, Sarah, to the program. We're so excited to have you on today. Yay, I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Why don't you start to tell us your survivor story? Yeah, for sure. It's a long one. Um, <laughs> I'm from a small town in, in Michigan. It's called Lansing. And it was the kind of town where we left our doors unlocked. We played outside until it got dark. Um, it wasn't a place where we were ever concerned for our safety in any way, shape, or form. It was back in the 80s and into the 90s where life was good. No social media, no electronic devices, um, just sort of good old-fashioned Midwestern upbringing. Um, and the girl that lived down the street from me invited me to this open house that they were having where she did gymnastics. And, and I said, that sounds fun. I was like five years old. And so my mom said, sure. And I went and I bounced on the trampoline and had so much fun and flash forward, I was pretty good. I took, um, I signed up for classes and I advanced pretty quickly. Around eight years old is when a young gentleman in his early twenties, just out of undergraduate university, not yet in medical school, wandered into our gym and asked our head coach if he could volunteer as an athletic trainer. Um, and our coach said, sure, no problem. And he gave him a room way in the back of the gym that wasn't being used. It was behind closed doors. It was inaccessible to parents. You would have had to walk across like the whole gymnasium and upset the whole practice in order to get to this room. So nobody was going back there. But this young man was named Larry Nassar, now a household name. And um, what people don't always realize is he wasn't an Olympic doctor when, when he commenced all of this. It, it, he was just a young guy in a small town wandering into a gym and asking to volunteer. So that's where I first met him again. I was eight. He was in his early 20s. We all had nothing but hopes and dreams and a positive future ahead of us, or so we thought. And that's where he set up shop and began rehearsing what would become the activity, which we now know is sexual abuse, but at the time we thought was medical treatment that would make him what will go down in history, I think, is one of the the most prolific serial pedophiles of all time, at least in sport. So that's that's sort of was my childhood. I saw him several times a week, every week, every year. I grew up with him. I went to his wedding. Uh, he came, you know, over to my house. I went to his house and this went on. He became famous. He became an Olympic doctor. He went to four or five Olympic games. And every time I would come home from college or wherever I was in my, in my life, I would make sure to stop by Michigan State University go out to lunch, hang out, go back to his office and again be what I thought still at the time medically treated. And I think people need to realize and we can dive into this is how would I not understand that this was sexual abuse, especially as I got older? And we can talk about whatever you want, but the grooming process is a, is a big topic when it comes to, to how this could happen. It's the number one question I get asked. How did you not know? How could this happen? How could so many people be fooled? How could the parents be in the room while he was doing this a lot of the time as he moved over to Michigan State? 
and became the head of their sports medicine department. But my answer is really simple. It's called grooming. It's called, it's called messing with people's brains. <laughs> and we can talk more about that. But um, my abuse lasted for the entirety of my childhood into my early adulthood. Um, and it wasn't until other women came forward and said, whoa, 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 it, that's not medical treatment. That's not normal. That my brain even began to be open to the idea that that wasn't normal. Um, but then I had a two-year-old daughter and I'm, and I'm like, no, that's not normal. When you put it in that light, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. If anybody was doing that to my kid, I would have a massive problem. I would identify that as sexual abuse. So we can talk about any anything you want to talk about within that story. I know it's a lot. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it's really interesting how it just gets by because they're really used to doing it in front of people. Um, these people are so charming. They're loved by so many. And so... I understand because in both of our situations, we've had experiences with that and these guys just fly by and for years it goes unnoticed. Collier, I know you might have a question. I mean, I guess for me, I didn't realize how long with everyone in general was his, was his reign of terror. I would say about 30 years, the better part of 30 years, he was getting away with this and it got bolder and more brazen, I think, as he went on. You know, as I mentioned, he started in a back room behind closed doors by himself, but he took his abuse of, uh, you know, of little girls to the Olympics. He was doing it in training centers. He was doing it in his own home with his wife and children upstairs you know he was he was getting bolder and bolder as time went on doing it at michigan state university in a traditional medical exam room with a parent sitting right there talking to the parent the whole time and you know i challenge people i know the knee-jerk reaction is well that would never happen to my kid if I was standing right there, right? I mean, that's what my first thought is. Well, no, 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 I because I'm the kind of mom who watches every single thing. Well, so were these parents. And in my work now, I have a lot of physician abuse cases, pedi pediatrician abuse cases where the parents are always in the room. But what they do is use medical language to confuse the parent, um, come up with ailments that are either not real or are not, you know, you don't need to be checking a nine-year-old for breast cancer. But when you say breast cancer to a parent, they're like, oh my gosh, thank you for checking my kid for breast cancer. If you, you know, think this is medically necessary, oh my gosh, thank you. So it's that big kind of like, messing with the parent's brain. A lot of times these are first time parents. They have nothing to compare it to. When I was a first time parent, I didn't know what was normal for a pediatric checkup. I'd never gone to one before, right? Like These guys will make up conditions in order to carry out abuse? Sometimes, absolutely, sometimes. Wow. And use very technical medical language to make it seem like they're up here and you are down here and they are helping you. So in some of my cases, the parents seek 
that doctor who spends the extra time with their kid, who goes into more detail, who uses more medical jargon. So they're actually seeking out what they think is a very thorough doctor, but happens to be a pedophile, you know, abusing their child right in front of their face. So it, it's very, very difficult to swallow, very difficult to understand. I appreciate that, but I've gone through it both as that child, also as a woman representing survivors of, of sexual abuse in these cases where, listen, the word grooming is not just a trendy word. It's a real thing. It's a real concept. People don't get away with this stuff for decades, as you mentioned, going unnoticed because out of luck, right? It's not luck. They're skilled. They're smart. They're seasoned. They know the right things to do and say. They know how to ingratiate themselves to people's families and parents. And I, I mean, I think there's so many characteristics of a perpetrator that are common. And I know, Tara, our our situations are so different, but I bet the personality characteristics are similar. Narcissism, grooming, boldness, sociopathic. (laughs) I mean, and the list could go on, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it's really interesting, too, because Collier's dad was a doctor. That's sort of what I'm processing right now is my father was accused of molesting my two cousins a year before he murdered my mom. And he was actually going to get arrested for it. Wow. But my cousins couldn't test, couldn't go through with like testifying. So they dropped the charges they were going to charge him with. But I'm just, as you're explaining all this, I'm wondering like how I can see how that happened. And yeah, I'm just processing a lot right now. I'm sorry. This is just, uh, yeah, but we, really question doctors over here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you have to, unfortunately you have to, and you really have to question, unfortunately, all adults in positions of power and authority over children these days. I mean, our cases are happening within schools all the time at, you know, after school programs, camps, I mean, what better place to gain access to a child than a sleepaway camp where there really are no parents and adults, right? Like we see it happening there. We've all seen it happen happen within religious institutions. Um, but But I always say pedophiles will look for the lowest barrier of entry. So they're looking for the easiest access to the kid. And, you know, that in in many communities is medicine, um, but it's also sports, schools, you know, religious organizations, after school programs, summer camps, sleepaway camps, and all of the above. Um, And so I hate to be... A Debbie Downer, um, but I'm I'm a mom of two little girls, and so you know I look at this world with that set of eyes in terms of where can I send my kid and what does you know safety look like for a child these days. I think for me, one of the things is on the flip side, like you were talking about checking the the child for a nine year old for breast cancer or whatever. But where is the line of like demarcation between? a physician doing their job because I'm sure that like I, I, me as a parent, I would be like full on alert. I'd be like, what are you doing to my kid? You know what I mean? But obviously physicians do need to 
touch or do need to be, you know, physically exam a child? Like are, are physicians now being placed under more scrutiny for being physicians or is there not there are new standards of protocol that the AMA is, is recommending or how does that work? Yeah, well, I think they should absolutely be under more scrutiny, given what we know now, right? Like when we know better, we do better. I think that was like a Maya Angelou quote, and then Oprah poached it and whatever. But when we know better, we do better. And we know um, that adults shouldn't be alone with kids, right? We know that there should be chaperones in the room. We know that physicians should be asking permission. Um, it's not a hard thing to do to, to say, is it okay if I now do this? And here's why, right? Um, there needs to be a system of checks and balances. And if I was a physician today, I would be grateful um, that there was another set of eyes in the room because sometimes this can work the other way around, right? You're, you don't want to be falsely accused of something. So why not have that transparency and that openness to have other adults around? Um, I don't want to drive my kids' friends around because I don't know what they're going to say, right? I don't want to host your kid at my house for a sleepover. I don't. That's because that's on me. And so I think as long as, as there is that transparency and that openness, you know, I went for an MRI a couple of years ago. Ago. And I was kind of nervous to do it. And it's like kind of claustrophobic and you go in the thing and I, I don't, I don't like that. And I don't love the doctor be, to begin with because of my experiences. And um, I was uncomfortable. And it was also late at night because the radiology departments stay open later for people who have jobs and things. So I went in late at night, like around eight o'clock for my MRI by myself. And I walked in and the first thing I saw on the um, the check-in deck desk, the, the, the receptionist wasn't there, she was helping someone else, was chaperones are available upon request. And the um, medical provider was Penn Medicine in Philadelphia. And I was so proud and felt so good about that. This is post Nasser that I took a picture of it and I tweeted it out and Penn Medicine saw it and they ended up having me come and speak and train. And, you know, they, it, it, I didn't end up needing a chaperone, but giving me that choice of not being alone. I didn't know if the provider was going to be a male or a female and I'm stuck in a tube and I've been abused as a kid and whether or not I've been abused as a kid, like it just, it made perfect sense to me. Why not give the patient those rights? Why not give the patient that option? Um, and for providers, you know, if, if it were me, I would want somebody else in the room. So I think like everything, Having these conversations is bringing to, to light um, these issues, and I think we can all do better. And if I was a doctor right now, I would want to do better. I would want my patients to feel comfortable. I would want there to be transparency and openness. I wouldn't want to be secretive. I wouldn't see it as a burden to have extra added safeguards in my practice and in my office, I would see it as a wonderful thing so that everybody feels good. Everybody feels safe. Let's talk about what, you know, your ailments and let's get you healthy and let's get you back out in the world. And remember physicians take an oath that says do no harm. 
right? And so that, that's, you know, I took an oath as a lawyer, you know, it, it's, it's something that they should innately want. They're healers, right? And so why not keep our patients safe um, and focus on, on how we can help them heal as opposed to how we can keep secrets and potentially cause more harm? Yeah, 100%. Now I want to go back a little bit to when you were little. How long were you in gymnastics for? And then how long were you friends with him afterwards for? Yeah, so I was in gymnastics through high school. I stopped just short of the end of high school. And then I went off to college. And I, the last time I saw him, I and was medically treated by him at Michigan State University Sports Medicine Clinic, I was 25 years old. I had graduated from an Ivy League college. I was a first-year law student. So I was not some like, you know, underachiever. I was somebody that should have had, should have, right? In quotation, should have known better, right? I should have had red flags. But that's the power of grooming. That's the power of impacting a child's brain. So I think it's important to note when something starts when you're eight, you don't know a lot different. You really don't know anything different. My daughter is turning eight in September. You know, if I told her this is normal, she would think it's normal. You know, she doesn't have anything to compare it to. And so, um, and it's also, and I know you can probably relate to this, when somebody's constantly telling you they care about you and they love you and you're amazing and they're going to keep you safe um, and take care of your body, like you believe them because you're a kid and they're an adult. <laughs> it's pretty much that simple. Um, kids are not hardened yet. They don't know to distrust people. They don't know about the world. They don't know about the birds and the bees. So for me, it started so young. You know, I compare it to like kids born into a cult or born into like a like a Scientology or whatever. Like if that's all, you know, that's all, you know, <laughs> I don't know any other way of putting it that way. Um, but it was all I knew. So I'm 25 and it's still all I know. I still think it's normal and I, and I don't see anything wrong with it until other people brought it to my attention. I drank the Kool-Aid, you know what I mean? And it's really easy to do when you're really little and you know nothing else. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that there's a lot of just the grooming that happens. And then when you're older and it happens again, sometimes you're just so unaware of it. Have there been situations later in life that you've been like, oh, that was not right, but later on. Yes, yes. And I could kick myself because I did, I should have known, once again, in air quotes, I should have known better. So I was in my 30s and I went to get a massage at a one of the world's largest hotel chain, you know, spa, hotel spas, right? And I had a male massage therapist and it went too far and he was touching me in ways that made me wildly uncomfortable. And I laid there face down, completely frozen. I didn't say a word. 
I walked out. I went home. I told my boyfriend at the time what happened. Of course, he was so mad and wanted to go back and beat the guy up and report it. And my reaction was, no, 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 it was okay. Uh, maybe I was wrong, you know, whatever. But he was literally touching me in between my legs, but it was in a massage kind of. So I thought, oh, he's just doing his job. Or is he? Or isn't he? Or in my gut, I was uncomfortable. In my gut, I was really disturbed enough to go home and tell somebody about it. But in my brain, I said, no, 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 sweep it under the rug. Don't ruin his life. Don't bother him. It, it, I'll be embarrassed, you know, and I'm looking back, kicking myself going, that was a bit, that was one of the world's biggest hotel chains, right? Like I should have marched right up to that desk. I should have gotten up, gotten dressed and called the police and, and, and walked right up to that desk and said that massage therapist just sexually abused me because that's exactly what it was. I wasn't confused. It wasn't a gray space. Looking back, it was, it was complete sexual abuse um, of a 30-something-year-old woman, and I did nothing about it. And I still kick myself over that one. But um, yeah, absolutely. You, you second-guess yourself all the time. And I still, you know, I still have to have, you know, truth serum conversations with myself about, you know, okay, you don't need to be a wallflower. Don't stand back. You don't need to be passive. You're not a child anymore. Say something, stand up and say something. I've gotten better at it as the years have gone on, but it's going to be a lifelong process for me for sure. Yeah. I think it's, it's that unlearning process that you have to go through, right? To sort of, I mean, it's, it can't go anywhere these days, right? <laughs> Oh, I mean, I just, um, well, I'm so sorry. And how long, so he was, when did he get, finally get arrested for this Larry Nasser 2017? Good. Yes, exactly. So 20, well, 2016, um, it, 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 it had been sort of bubbling up leading up to that. Um, and then he was, um, he pled guilty and was sentenced, um, in 2018, January of 2018. And that's what um, people started to see on TV. And that, in my view, is a big part of that Me Too movement, because Me Too wasn't something we all knew and heard, I feel like, until the image of little girl after little girl after little girl after little girl going up to that podium, giving their victim impact statements, um, ranging in age from as young as under 10 years old through someone like me who was pushing 40, you know, at the time, same perpetrator, same sexual abuse. How in the world could this span 30 years? And I think that's the image that was really burned into people's heads um, and, and got this conversation started, this very, very important conversation started. And, you know, I do think, I do think every time we have one of these conversations, somebody's life will be changed for the better. Somebody's life will be saved. Um, whether that means it's a survivor listening who's contemplating harming themselves, or it means a parent's listening and they're gonna, you know, change the way they're approaching raising their child. I, I do believe every time we have this conversation, at least one life, if not many lives, will be saved or changed for the better. 
How many victim impact statements were there? Because I, I thought I felt like it was like 50 or something crazy. More. It was it ended up being, I think, over 200. Um, what? Yeah. So I'll tell you, we started the sentencing on a Tuesday, the day after Martin Luther King Day. And at that point, there were only like, I think, 30 of us or so signed up and they thought it would last one day maybe into the second day. And I uh, went at the very end of that first day and it was a really big moment. And overnight, um, the prosecutor got a bunch of phone calls because the news had covered it that day. And by the next day, there was a packed house of reporters and there were, you know, were all her phone was ringing off the hook of more victims that were like, okay, if they could speak out, I want to speak out. And then it went on and on and on. And by Friday of that week, our Olympians were flying in from all over the country who had originally said they either wanted to be anonymous or did not want to come to court and did not want to face him. They were like, if they can do it, I can do it too. And it went on into the next week, I think till like Wednesday of the next week where every night more, more victims were calling and saying, if she can do it, I can do it too. And I love that concept of survivors standing on the shoulders of other survivors and of drawing that strength from each other because it was terrifying. I mean, it was so scary to walk right up there four feet away and to face him and to tell him every last thing I wanted to say. And then, um, and then have that moment of closure, which it was for me, but um, I just loved women standing on the shoulders of other women. I love survivors making each other braver and bolder and more outspoken. I love the support. I love the sisterhood. And since that week in my life, I've only seen that grow in the community of survivors across the world, really, not just Larry Nassar survivors, but survivors of child sex abuse, but then survivors of any kind of abuse and then survivors of any kind of adversity, right? Like both of you have experienced a level of trauma that is totally different than what I went through and is something that I could not even imagine. And I look at what you guys have been through and I'm like, I could never survive that but you guys survived that and you know you can light the way for other survivors that have gone through things like what you have i can do the same but we're all at the end of the day survivors that you know the the tie that binds is maybe our experiences are so different but there are common themes and we're all still standing right some days yeah braver and bolder than others. Some days I still have bad days. I still yeah. have days where I don't want to get out of bed and I cry and I throw up because I see some image on the news or story or whatever. Right. But, um, you know, good days and bad days, but we're all still here. And I give us a lot of credit for that. I give you guys a lot of credit for that. Cause I can't imagine what you've been through. Um, but I give all of us who are still standing and still showing up, a lot of credit for that. That's so incredible that people were able to do that because I think that's one of the things for me 
when I share my story or people relate to my story is being able to confront my father who murdered my mother and who was also my abuser and her abuser and obviously had these other things, you know, happen and, and did this to my cousins, which I didn't know about as a child, but I did know about as an adult when I confronted him in my film. That is so incredible that there's so many people that took that opportunity and said, you know what, I'm going to come forward too. Instead of just saying, you know what, I'll just deal with this just to seize that opportunity. I mean, I mean, not that somebody like him would care, you know, they're evil, but just to be able to just like, you have to sit through that for 10 days. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Can you imagine just, just to take the power back a little bit? I mean, that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty incredible that, that, that you all had that opportunity. I mean, that's. Yeah. But I don't know that any one of us, if we were just, the individual one person would have seized that opportunity. I mean, I, I don't know that I would have, I would have been too scared or feeling alone. I think it's just like the power of that community. I feel so lucky that we got that, but I recognize that most survivors don't have that and do feel like the only one, which again is why I feel like what you guys are doing here on this show and the work you guys are doing um, is so important because even if you never hear from that person, just by them watching you and listening to these conversations, they're feeling less alone, you know? And I think that's something that's so beautiful. It's such a silver lining in what's happened to all of us is that we are changing lives, whether we'll ever know about it or not. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Sarah Klein. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad. 